This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes, or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week, and especially this uh, week, the, the last week in Lent before Semana Sancta, before Holy Week itself, um, and uh, the week which begins the Sacred Triduum. So, Ed, we are in the home stretch. That's not a word. Ed, we are in the home stretch of the Lenten period, uh, our Lenten sacrifices having manifested in our lives, I have no doubt, new avenues of holiness and charity and divine intimacy. How you doing? Um, I don't know that I'm doing quite as well as all that, but I, I do feel like Lent is finishing stronger for me than it began. Oh. So that's something. I, Lent for me, I, you know, it, it, there is the, I'm always sensitive to the risk with Lent and the idea of um, Lenten penances and things that it becomes a kind of self-help test of will and, you know, a sort of Catholic New Year's resolution. And that, you know, you can you can give in to the, the sort of mentality of, you know, oh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to have a, I'd really like to have a candy bar now, but I can't because it's Lent, aren't I virtuous? And, you know, that's that's the kind of thinking that I can I can easily succumb to. That or a Lent kind of becomes, stoic, like, yeah, it becomes I'm kicking either, ass at not having candy bars because I'm a badass. Exactly. And, you know, the, at least as I've always understood it, the point of Lenten abstinence, the point of um, the spiritual weapons of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is, is it's warfare. It's a time in the desert. It's a time to, um, it's not about accomplishment. It's, a, it's about being in a particular place spiritually. I would like to say even it's not about accomplishment, and I'm worried. See, I, I want to say these words, but there are certain words that when I want to say, it just feels like I'm channeling the 1970s or something like that. But my own experience is that, that Lent, at least in terms of prayer, is not about accomplishment, but about a sort of an exercise in surrender, if you will. And you can see why I'm reticent to use that word, but just um, I have found that uh, um, increasing pr- prayer practices in Lent um, necessarily requires a kind of um, surrendering, a kind of uh, surrendering to the operation of grace in one's life rather than a sort of um, stoic exercise of one's will in which one, by sheer sort of force of determination, suddenly becomes far more prayerful or something like that. Prayer yes, I find I th- on the whole is, prayer I find on the whole is, is, is mostly a sort of exercise in surrendering um, to God's will and to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's funny because it, I wish I knew that like a long, I wish it didn't take me a long time to learn that. Um, it, it's interesting that you say that you think of it mostly as a period of, of surrender, whereas I, I tend to think of it as exactly the opposite, that Lenten, that Lent is a time of combat, that Lent is a time of, um, <laughs> well, it, I mean, it is, it's a period of You calling that, me yellow? No, I'm just saying that prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are defined by the church as spiritual weapons. That, agreed, that's, agreed, agreed, agreed. You don't, you don't use weapons by surrendering. No, I, you, you, don't, I, you don't, you don't. I'm, not, you don't I'm use not negating weapons. what you're saying. No, I'm, I know, it's I, just perhaps we just, I mean, it's, it, this is actually interesting because it, it demonstrates kind of our own, the, the, 
the diversity of spiritualities in the life of the church, the diversity of sort of perspectives in the interior life of the church. And what I what I'm talking about, I suppose, is um, uh, I have found that um, I have found that a, um, a Pelagian effort to to um, uh, to master my own will, a stoical effort to master my own will, is largely the largely yields the fruit of unsuccess, disappointment, frustration, despair. And so it has taken me some time, I suppose, to realize that rather than set out on my own will to do X, Y, or Z, I must um, uh, sort of say that I, I must sort of accept that I can do that which I wish to do only by grace and therefore accept the insufficiency of my own will as a sort of a, as an a priori reality and um, and invite God to sort of fill in or empower me beyond that which is within my capacity. That's the kind of surrender that I, I suppose I mean. So now I'd like to hear about the kind of combat that you suppose you mean. Well, I guess it, um, I, I do think we are talking about two sides of the same coin here. Of course. Um, but for me, I, I think of Lent as a combat in that I, I have not perceived myself, either this Lent or any previous Lent, to have become more virtuous. Um, or to have sinned any less, uh, particularly. In fact, the contrary is often true. I find that um, I, I am more acutely aware of my sinfulness in Lent, and I think that is, I, I, I mark that as a, a Lent well spent in many ways, because it seems to me that if Lent is uh, a time of spiritual combat and the, the weapons that the church provides are these, these weapons of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, then it is to a degree, um, not in, at least for me, uh, not about um, surrendering or accepting um, either God's presence or the de- defects of my own nature, um, but still that still as mastering myself by individual acts of will and sort of notching up accomplishments. But it's a, I, I guess I think of Lent more as a, as a dynamic period, that it's not about individual accomplishments, it's about um, uh, a new way of thinking, J.D., a novus habitus mentis, if you will, um, of of beginning to fight back against my own impulses and urges. And often those are, you know, emotion, a kind of emotional sloth, really, um, the sort of indifference into which I, I find it all too easy to slide, uh, particularly when I'm allowing myself to become overly focused on, on the more mundane aspects of, for example, work. Or things like that, but to have, if you like, um, a renewed sense that every minute of my life matters, and the intentionality of my prayers and my actions and my daily life is um, is of immediate consequence to my soul, and I find that to often be the way in which I am able to derive the most benefit from Lent and prepare best for Easter. I was, um, I, uh, a priest I know was saying uh, last night, in fact, <clears throat> that, you know, if you reflect on different um, texts in the gospel, and he was he was talking particularly about uh, the part where Christ is, oh, you, you know, went told to Mass about, last evening? I like to go, I, I like I don't to, go do to that. church as I don't go to Mass on Wednesday evening very often, but you, you tend to do that from time to time, don't you? I do. Um, Interesting. And uh, it's uh, anyway. So th- this priest was uh, was reflecting on on um, the gospel uh, in which Christ is informed about the Galileans who are killed by the Romans and have have their blood mingled with that of their sacrifices and the, the falling of the tower at Siloam and everything. And he was saying that we can have um, we can have a law lo- a wrong Lenten mentality about 
examples like this to say this is a, this is about sinners, you know, being punished and we need to be more holy to avoid it. And he said, no, really, it's we are all. And this seems to be what Christ is saying in the gospel. We are all going to perish. No one is, you know, more sinful than the other because in the eyes of God, we are all sinners. The point is, are we prepared for our end? Are we prepared for the end of our life? Are we prepared for um, giving an account of our life and how it has been lived? Will our will when we meet our creator will our end make sense in the light of our life and i found that very helpful and i think that's really what lent is about for me is that it is about um it's about preparing for holy week it's about preparing for the triduum absolutely but the triduum is fundamentally the death and resurrection of christ which is hopefully presaging um my own death and resurrection by christ that this is, you know, that this is what it's about. It's about understanding that I am, you know, we are all of us in the church and everyone in the world, whether they like it or not or know it or not. Um, we are all on this journey through the desert that we are a pilgrim people here on earth and that our final destination is, we don't know how far from us, but it is nevertheless very clearly marked out where we're headed and how prepared are we for that. Well said. Well, thank you. Yeah. Great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we have uh, I, the reason. Yeah. So we have um, we have a lot of things that we want to talk about today. Well, we have really two things that we want to talk about today. And this has been, I, I would say, I don't know if you would agree with this, but in terms of our news coverage, this has been kind of a, a heavy week in that we have been covering some pretty serious things this week. Uh, yeah, it's not been a light news week by I mean, any we stretch did have, of the imagination. We, yeah, we, we, we had a couple of fun little things in there, but this has been, yeah, kind of a kind of a heavy week. And, you know, just before we started recording this podcast, um, I was editing um, a report from our Ukrainian correspondent, Anatoly Babinski, about, um, about the way in which Ukrainians are, um, you know, Ukrainians of faith even, are responding to or processing the Bucha massacre. If you don't um, know about that, it, it, was, it was over the weekend that... Um, pictures began circulating of um, of mass graves, of bodies in the street, um, of of uh, the bodies of civilians, men, women, and children who had been um, killed and, in some cases, tortured. In some cases, tortured violently, even in, in some cases, sexually assaulted um, by uh, by Russian soldiers who occupied the the town of Buka outside of Kiev. And the pictures began to circulate because the Russian army has. Um, been pushed back out of the 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 environs of Kiev, or if if you will, I suppose it depends on which military um, strategist you listen to, but has either been pushed back from the environs of Kiev, which it was not able to take, to uh, probably to the world's extraordinary surprise, or um, if you will, has um, has done what um, the the Russian uh, military community calls a strategic retreat in order to consolidate their forces in the eastern part of Ukraine. But in either case, and I think um, pushed back is an inaccurate description there, in either case, um, towns which were occupied by the Russian military surrounding Kiev have begun to be um, liberated, and the Ukrainian army has begun to enter into those towns. And as they entered the town of Buka at the, at the beginning of this month, they found in the streets the bodies, again, of men, women, and children, um, many of whom had had their hands uh, tied together with um, with plastic, um, you know, those plastic ties that you, zip ties with zip ties, mm -hmm. and um, and had been shot um, uh, in the street. 
some of whom had been shot as they were fleeing. One man was shot on a bicycle. Um, there's evidence of people having been tortured, of women having been raped, of men having had their teeth pried out or their ears cut off, um, of children having been um, uh, shot in front of their parents, um, and then many people buried in, in shallow graves outside of the city. So the sort of uh, local authorities, local Ukrainian authorities say that more than 320 civilians at least were killed in this small town of about 30,000, many of whom, many of the, the people, of course, had fled as refugees, um, and uh, and some of those who remained were were killed or tortured in these ways. And, um, and in the wake of that, uh, you know, our correspondent, Dr. Babinski, Anatoly, says that um, uh, that there has been a, a settling in a sort of a, a sort of stupor, a kind of deep social depression in Ukraine. And Ukrainians, you know, in the early weeks of the war were pushing back. Even as Ukrainians fled, there was extraordinary um, optimism among some people because the Ukrainian military was doing far better than anyone expected. And so there was this sense of hope, of um, of patriotism and uh, of kind of confidence, and uh, and our correspondent says that as the the atrocities of the war become more apparent, the sort of psychological and spiritual effect of that becomes more manifested. Including in that is a, is a set of questions which were asked, um, you know, by Jewish survivors of the Holocaust and amid the Holocaust in the wake of the Holocaust, very famously and often very poignantly about where God is and how God allows uh, allows that kind of suffering to happen. And I was struck by the profundity of that kind of suffering and by the questions that it occasions even for people of, of real and deep faith. I mean, even priests um, in the country were telling Anatoly that they just didn't know how to talk about this. Some priests at least were telling Anatoly they just didn't know how to talk about this. Protestant pastor was saying he didn't know how to pray with people who had suffered such unspeakable atrocities or or to talk about how, uh, where the Lord was and all of that. Yeah. I, I I mean it's it's important I think you know as you said and as Anatoly wrote that you know for many people they just they don't have an answer to this that this poses a question you know where where is God in the midst of um, such intense suffering but also such um, such deliberate um, cruelty to to the innocent and you know there was there was one priest he spoke to who who offered, I think, the most important answer to this is where where is God in all of this? Well, when we speak of Buka, we, we, we're speaking of Christ. Right. That it, it was is really powerful, it is, wasn't it? Yeah. It is Christ who was raped in Buka. It was Christ who was murdered. It was Christ who had his hands tied behind his back. That when Christ identifies himself with the poorest and the weakest and the oppressed, that this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about just sort of, you know, uh, someone wearing a Roman collar or a monastic habit or, or something like that, that he is, he is present in the suffering of the innocent, that the suffering of the innocent is the scandal of the cross, that this is the foundation of Christian theology. And so this is, and, you know, to speak of, as the church has often called it, the scandal of the cross, um, this is what it means because it is, you know, it is a scandalous thing to say, in yeah, the face of is. such human tragedy, where is, I wonder where is how God? People God is in the ones who are being priest. I wonder how people would, our readers would react to this Dominican priest who's, who said Christ is the one who was raped, Christ is the one whose hands were tied, Christ is the one who was shot. It's so provocative and so scandalous, I think, for those of us who wish to think of Christ in the resurrection and not Christ on the cross. It's so scandalous that I, I wondered even how our how our readers would react to those those very earnest and, and, and deeply Catholic reflections. It is a deeply Catholic. As I was going to say, it is, it is scandalous. It is provocative. But it, the announcement of the cross has always been scandalous and provocative. I mean, this is something St. Paul writes about constantly, 
that you know it is <laughs> the announcement of Christ crucified um, is not the the death of one man. It is it is the it is God um, identifying Himself physically with the sufferings of the innocent, of taking on Himself not just the weight of sin, but the but you know the the pain and suffering that goes with that. Um, it, it it is what makes. Um, it, it is, I think, what provokes often in many places in 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 history um, a violent reaction to to the Christian faith. That this is something that um, a human sense of natural justice cannot tolerate, and that that is fundamentally what plants the question of you know where where was God here in in this massacre of the innocents? That that is a question of natural human justice to say this cannot be allowed. That this you know our our soul recoils at the idea that the innocent could be permitted to suffer in this way. And it's this sort of, you know, ironic is Dostoevsky, who, you know, had a, a, a famous passage about this in the brothers Karamazov, that this is the, the sort of atheist brothers um, rejection of the faith as he, you know, lays out this lengthy thing of, you know, how can you tell me that there is a loving God if, you know, I can conceive of a child who's, you know, been abused and neglected and, right. and, and you know, for dead. And the answer is, you know, where is God on all this? And the answer is well, God is with the child. That's where God is, right? And to to say that God takes the part and the place of the innocent suffering is not to announce the the limitation or the weakness of God. On the contrary, it's to announce his his infinite power. That this is this is the and that the the primary expression of his infinite power is in the infinite nature of his love. Yeah, it's it's um, as true and as extraordinary as that is, and as sort of shocking as it is in practicality. I think. Offering that, um, uh, on the one hand, you'd think that it would seem that sort of offering that in the wake of um, in, in the wake of actually experiencing these tragedies might be um, uh, would be could be the only um, the only thing that makes sense. And yet, on the other hand, it, you might think that those who have that such an immediacy of loss would be um, reticent to uh, to accept its veracity. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like. It's um, perhaps the suffering sort of um, is uh, is a pretext for um, for deeper conversion, which is what some of the priests in the story were saying. You know, perhaps this will conf- not that it was a good thing as a result of this, but perhaps one consequence will be that the life of faith deepens for Ukrainian believers um, as they sort of uh, are stripped of, of of a lot of the their preconceptions. Uh, on the other hand. Um, the sort of just shocking psychological and spiritual despair that comes from kind of that kind of loss, you know, may indeed sort of just lead to an alienation from, from God. I, I think that's, that's almost inevitable. I mean, but this is part of um, the life's journey that is seeking God, that yeah. is, you know, trying to, trying to find um, a way forward to God that, you know, it's in the, in the, um, so Augustine said, you know, the, the the reconciliation of man to his God is, you know, is the is the purpose of creation, is, right. is what we're all ordered towards, and it's not it's not smooth, and in many in many instances, it's not linear either. That it is it is complicated, and it is painful, and it is scandalous. Um, but the you know the, the veracity of the gospel message um, is not lessened by the the intense difficulty in recognizing its applicability in the worst of situations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. 
Well, you know, Ed, as we talk about this, it's interesting. I, I wonder, um, there, has been a, there has been a great deal, you know, in the early part of the war, of course, we covered the kind of fracturing of the Orthodox communion in Ukraine, the distancing of Ukrainian Christians from, uh, of Ukrainian Orthodox Christians from Patriarch Kirill, the Patriarch of Moscow. Um, and at that time, it, you know, it, even just weeks ago, you know, as, as more and more Ukrainian Orthodox churches were um, were distancing themselves from from Kirill and um, and removing him from the prayers of the Eucharistic liturgy and these kinds of things, there was talk about whether there would be sort of a second schism in Ukrainian Orthodoxy um, of of Ukrainian Orthodox um, churches, which left the Moscow the sort of patron the patronage of the Moscow Patriarchate. Do you think the um, the profundity of the uh, of what appears to be a sort of emerging humanitarian crisis, which people, you know, many people are calling even a um, uh, even a uh, um, a genocide, do you think that that will um, sort of short circuit the ecclesiological discussions that have been going on, intensify them? I mean, sort of what? It's a weird question to ask, but we're the kind of people who talk about this sort of stuff. Have you thought much about what you think the ecclesiological implications of the deepening? humanitarian and perhaps genocide crisis in Ukraine might be? Uh, I mean, I've given it some thought. I I think that the, the isolation of the Russian Orthodox Church under Kirill is going to be um, accelerated greatly because by all accounts and through all his public appearances and statements, the, the patriarch has been Evermore, he seems to have, you know, I, I think it was, I, I kind of had a moment where I thought, well, this is the fork in the road for him. And that was about a, a week, 10 days ago. Um, I was like, you know, this is, this is getting pretty hairy. There's not going to be an easy or obvious end to this war. Mm -hmm. And he can just sort of elide or try and move past his early sort of support for Putin and the, and the Ruskimir mentality and all of that stuff, you know, this is going to be settled in for the long haul. He's really going to have to make his peace with um, this. And he's either going to have to back away from what he's done and try, try to, you know, steer a sort of more conciliatory course, or he's going to have to double down. And I've, it's been my impression that he has very much doubled down. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, he's now holding liturgies at this bizarre um, temple of, of the Russian military. Well, I, it's the sort of, it's the sort of, it's the, um, it is the basilica of effectively the military chaplaincy of uh, 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 of the Russian Orthodox Church, right? Um, and I mean, it is it, it it's some it's some striking architecture going on there, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the liturgies that are going on there are pretty pretty striking. As is the tone of what Kirill is saying um, when when he's speaking at them, and he seems to me to be all in on yeah. the mm -hmm. Russian. Um, not just the the presence of Russian troops in Ukraine, but the Russian rationale for the war it is prosecuting in Ukraine um, with limited, if any, military success, but horrific um, casualties against the civilian population, as we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think it is going to become untenable for any Christian church, Latin, Eastern, Catholic, Orthodox to maintain any kind of obvious communion um, with with Carol as as the sort of wave tide of the Russian forces goes out in the northern parts of the country. And, you know, as Anatoly was writing today, you know, 
this Buka is one thing, but we're going to have dozens of these. Right, exactly. He, he pointed out that Buka is one of the closest cities to um, Kiev, one of the first to be liberated, and, and, uh, and there may well be many other villages in which this sort of thing is repeated. And, 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 uh, and the more often they're repeated, the less they'll get the, the sort of individual attention that Buka has gotten, right? It'll just be sort of the, the regional massacre that becomes sort of apparent and these sort well, of Well, it it, it's the great maxim of Stalin to kill one person right. is a tragedy, to kill a million is a statistic. Right, that's right. That um, this is the, I don't think it's even the fear. I think this is the- Inevitable the gr- reality. Yeah, the grotesque inevitability mm-hmm. of what we will find in Ukraine is that we will very quickly get into the realms of statistics. And I think a consequence of that will be, it's. I, I find it hard to believe that there will be in a month's time any- churches i mean unless something changes in the news um or something changes from carol i I find it very hard to believe that in a month's time there will be any any other patriarchs any other patriarchal churches maintaining communion with carol because it becomes at a certain point just impossible i mean it becomes a moral cooperation with someone who is not just morally cooperating with the prosecution of a grave horrible evil but invoking the faith to justify it, which is, I mean, I mean, it's it's a kind of blasphemy, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I do think that will happen. I think but, something I've been trying to write about uh, today, and I, I've written, I've written many words. I thought you were trying this. to write about Vatican finances today. No, I'm not trying to write about Vatican finances today. I've written enough about that for the moment. Um, <laughs> something I've been trying to write about today, and I've written many words, but I, 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 I sort of. Um, I keep coming back and starting over because I keep going in a slightly different direction, but at least where I am with it now is I think increasingly the situation in Ukraine is going to be asking some very um, important and I don't want to say awkward, but some some very important and very direct and very uncomfortable questions of the Vatican about war and the justice of war, because we you know we talked about a few weeks ago pope francis having said in a conversation with kirill that every war is unjust Mm -hmm. that it's not possible to speak of a just war anymore and you know we talked a little bit about how this you know read in continuity with the other things that pope francis has said and taught particularly in fratelli tutti and then going to the catechism and jp2 and things like that there is there's a there's a through line um if you like in the church's teaching on the concept of a just war and that it, it sort of exists in, in um, counterbalance to the church's aspiration for a just international order, which makes war not the sort of inevitability of the reality of states uh, and, and becomes, and it, this, seemed, this was my conclusion, was that it seemed like Pope Francis was saying we have an international order of laws and courts and institutions like the united nations that renders war no longer ever a just act that is always a criminal act that a state with a problem with another state ought to go you know appeal to the various international bodies and to reach resolution obviously not in that context um uh condemning a defensive action but rather sort of not classifying a defensive action as an act of war Correct. Right. That it's, you know, it becomes um, someone vi- someone resisting a, a violent crime being committed against them. And that right. there is the expectation of and the obligation of um, the, the competent body to intervene as a sort of police action to prevent and to disarm the aggressor. Now, we are not seeing that in Ukraine with Russia, and I don't think we are going to. 
that you know there doesn't seem to me to be any appetite for um, international intervention or direct confrontation with Russia and, to assist. And even there's a certain degree of impossibility of it because of Russia's status in the United Nations, right? So well, exactly. that points to the sort of insufficiency of international bodies, which are not impartial, but are political. You know, there's an international judiciary might have its own problems, but an international political body aiming to mediate disputes between political bodies will inevitably have these kinds of overt and obvious conflicts of interest, which impede it from ever even claiming to be an impartial body. Indeed. And it's not a question of um, difficulty. It is, um, we are witnessing the impotence of the United Nations. And if that sounds like a strong statement, I believe it wholeheartedly, but I'm also not saying it myself. I'm quoting Pope Francis, mm -hmm. who right. said this on Wednesday. He said that the, we are witnessing the impotence of the United Nations in Ukraine, uh, in the context of the war in the Ukraine. Um, and that that's a big deal. And it's going yeah, to require... Yeah, you impotent. It is always a big deal. Yes. Um, in my experience. But it's a big deal in that it, 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 at least in my understanding of what the Pope has previously said about no war ever being just, if we are saying that the international institutions which render all war unjust are impotent, then, then just war is back on the table as a, as a logical necessity. And I think given that we are not going to see international interference in, in Ukraine, at least to the point of sort of direct policing action to repel Russia, to disarm them, and all of the other things which, uh, you know, Pope Francis says himself, said in Fratelli Tutti is, uh, is what he expects of a just international order in, in place of war. Um, if we're not going to see any of that, there are some, I think, pressing questions of justice around the legitimate right of the Ukrainians to defend themselves here, because if we are seeing as it, you know, that that seems to be the current analytical thinking is that Russia is sort of pulling back and consolidating in, in the eastern parts of the country in Donbass and around Crimea and everything and possibly trying to, you know, extend a land sort of bridge a between those bridge, two right. territories. Mm -hmm. yep. mm -hmm. um, and it seems at least possible that at some point a, a ceasefire of a kind will be offered on the terms of, well, Russia gets to keep what it has. That right. will be their their sort of bid. It's like, well, okay, but where's, uh, where is the where does where's the line in in the just and legitimate right of the Ukrainian people to resist violent occupation by people who are committing acts of what look certainly look like war crimes, and are arguably from the rhetoric coming out of Moscow is genocide. Um, you know where 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 does that where does that just and legitimate right of self defense reach to is it ever offset by um the need to accept losses of a kind in order to stave off future bloodshed you know where does the prerogative of peace balance against that is it an absolute right you know what about the people who are left in these occupied territories you know do they have a an ongoing right to violently resist violent occupation um you know i'm not claiming to have perfect answers to all these, but I'm saying that this is the sort of question that I think the church's teaching should have answers right. to and traditionally has, albeit in the just war theory. And so if we've had, as we have, um, popes like Francis and also JP too, sort of beginning to say, no, we've moved past the concept of just war. We've moved past this thinking of just war and basically premised all of that on the the functioning of an international order around the united nations if we're now saying well that's impotent 
we we need to resurrect this conversation of what is a just war and where is the just and legitimate right of defense how far does that extend you know because this is now it's going to become a thing it's going to become a live conversation yeah that's right um going back uh going back if i can to greek orthodox excuse me to orthodox ecclesiology for just a moment um because we talked about sort of what the reaction to that would be and then we talked about just war which is great um but i first of all i want to congratulate you Ed, because what you did was masterfully um uh pivot from my question to um your your topic and i i'm i'm this is i'm not being sarcastic right now i admire that that's well done you had a thing you were thinking about today a thing you were working on and I asked you a question about a different thing, and you masterfully said, effectively, great question, JD. Here's a different set of things, which I honestly, well done. I, I mean it. Uh, you know. Take the, take the win there. Take, take yeah. the win. Yeah, okay. But I do want to go back to the thing that I was talking about. You know, I, when, No, hang on. You're, you're, when you're being the host, unfair. When I answered the, the question. <laughs> I answered a different question than that. No, I didn't. Why. I said that I don't think it's possible in a month, absent a complete sea change from Carol or some, you know, total change in the in, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, in the book okay. that well, if anyone that. could be in functional communion with the well, Russian Orthodox uh, well, Church. Well, actually, I think the Russian Orthodox Church is relatively isolated already, right? I mean, so... Um, it, so but it's it, isolated it, on paper, JD. The the Orthodox communion is sort of split on by the numbers of recognized autocephalous Orthodox churches. I think it's almost 50-50, 50, or at 50. least it's 60-40. But when um, you're isolated, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church has been, has been out of communion with Constantinople, with the, with the Patriarch of Constantinople, Constantinople, who is effectively the the primus inter pares of, of orthodox hierarchs, um, uh, the, uh, the the first among equals, the elder brother of orthodox hierarchs since 2018? Mm-hmm. 18 or 19? I think it's... I think it's 18. Okay. No, maybe it was 19. And oh, yeah, I'll the, the sort of... Um, the, the patriarchs of various autocephalous churches within the orthodox communion are kind of split on that. But, um, but being out of communion with Constantinople is... Um, is a major kind of fracturing of of the Orthodox Church of the Orthodox Churches already, and I think I do think that some patriarchs will move in the direction of Constantinople if they haven't already. But the really interesting thing about that for me is that Kirill effectively can't be deposed. You know, in in our church, the Latin Catholic Church, there's only one first see which can be judged by no one, and it's the Petrine See. Um, only the Pope can't be deposed. Only the Pope can't be. Uh, uh, can't be um, r- well removed from office or um, or otherwise sanctioned or censured, but orthodoxy being a communion of of uh, of, of acephalous and autonomous churches um, does not have that kind of authority, and therefore Kirill can carry on in this way, um, c- continuing to endorse this um, ideology of the Ruski Mir, which you know many many religious leaders have said is effectively a pretext for. Uh, for uh, invasion and genocide, and um, and continue to uh, effectively give ecclesiastical cover to the Putin forces, with no ramification beyond um, beyond the severing of communion of at this point lesser you know, by the numbers and by the sort of order of precedence lesser churches. There's no other. There are no sanctions, right? I mean, it's not like the monks of Mount Athos will, will stop selling them altar bread or something like that, because they probably make their own altar bread. So there's really, I mean, the, the reign of Kirill and it's, um, and, and what it may, what may well be a sort of detrimental effect on the orth, on the Russian Orthodox Church, on the faith of believers in the Russian Orthodox Church, or the prospect of, uh, of deep Catholic belief within the Russian Orthodox Church may well last for, 
you know, quite some time. It may. And I mean, if what we are dealing with in and, the leadership of Carol at this point is a kind of blasphemy, and I think it's increasingly hard to argue it's anything else, um, it's not historically unknown for the leaders of particular churches, patriarchal churches, to lead their church into into schism, into heresy, into blasphemy. I mean, this is not unknown in the life of the church. You know, we've had two millennia of, uh, of this sort of thing happening off and on, and churches coming in and out of communion with each other uh, because of, in many cases, the sins and teachings of their, of their leaders, that this is part of the, the messy reality of, of human leadership of an institution that is both human and divine. And, uh, you know, what the, what, in any other circumstance or any other context other than Russia, I would be tempted to posit that we may see effectively defections from the membership of the Russian Orthodox Church to sister churches that, you know, are not infected with the... The Orthodox Church of Ukraine or to other Orthodox patriarchates, which are not in communion with Moscow or which are severing their community from communion from Moscow while maintaining the same ritual traditions and, and practices right. and theological perspective. But I mean, so, so deeply enmeshed is the Russian Orthodox church with the identity and mentality of Christians in Russia. And a huge part of that is not just uh, ethnic or cultural or geographic or historical identity, um, it, it's bound up in an ecclesiology as well right. mm -hmm. that, you know, the idea, I mean, you say that, you know, Kirill can't really be sanctioned. I mean, the truth is that Kirill thinks he's the primus into Paris, that this is the hubris of the, of the Moscow patriarch. It has been for all, most of its existence, basically, as far as I can tell, um, that it conceives itself as the third Rome, that, um, real Rome has lapsed and fallen, that Constantinople similarly lapsed and fallen, that the seat of empire moved from Rome to Constantinople to Moscow, and that ecclesiastical authority is fundamentally joined to and um, in cooperation with and validated by... Integrated with, would you say? Integrated with, indeed. Integrated with imperial power. Mm -hmm. And that... You know, the... the, the and, and I mean, this is, to be clear, this is the natural end of uh, what you might call an, uh, what's a word that you could do, an integralist take on the ecclesiology of the church, is that where the church and the state are um, not just co-laborers in the Lord's vineyard, but mutually uh, joined in supporting institutions, that the church has to eventually validate all of the actions of the state up to and including war crimes and genocide. Mm -hmm. And this is not a particular aberration that we are seeing in russia this is i would argue the the inevitable consequence of such ecclesiology well, always and everywhere. Not, it's certainly not historically unique by any stretch of the imagination um even e even in the history of the latin church where um no, certainly not where no. periods of um of sort of deep affiliated integral uh, deep affiliated integration rather sorry i misspoke deep affiliated integration of the church into the uh, uh, into the uh, the machinations of the state have led to uh, at the very least, a dampening of the church's obligation for a prophetic voice. and um, at, at the very least. At the very least. I'm trying to be charitable here. But at the very least, a dampening of the church's prophetic voice. And at times, a, uh, a kind of, uh, a kind of um, uh, senation of, um, of, 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 or of, of aberrant political practices or um, military political Again, practices. Again, you are, you are speaking with admirable restraint and charity. 
That's what I like to do. You know how I do. Speaking, Ed, of speaking with admirable restraint and charity, you and I will be right back after this word from our sponsors. We'd like to share a special word of thanks to our sponsor, the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. Some of you may know that the University of Dallas has recently launched a free video series called The Quest, which you can watch at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. The Quest is a five-episode documentary series about discovering your purpose and living it with courage. Begin your quest at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome back, Ed, to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. Uh, We were talking before the break about Ukraine, and now we are going to talk about uh, life in these United States, as it were. And I'm going to let you, Ed, um, introduce this topic. Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. No, you can do it. Uh, You can do it. I I believe in you. I... Uh, okay, well, so one of the one of the larger pieces we published this week was, of course, a a long interview um, with a with a pro life activist who has been the subject, the center, really, of a a considerable media and legal storm um, for for more than a bit now. Um, and it, oh gosh, where to begin? Um, it concerns, you know, she's been arrested. She has had. Uh, alerted authorities to at the same time um, the presence of several bodies of aborted children that were in her apartment and how she came by them why they were there and the very nature of her um, pro-life and specifically anti-abortion activism has become very much a talking point and Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of narrative and counter-narrative and accusations flying and so we do what we do which is we just thought well rather than sort of give a take on what seems to be happening, we just ask her to explain herself in her own words, which is what we did this week. That's right. We did. We talked with Lauren this week, and um, we asked her to talk with us. Uh, we asked her to talk with us because um, th- this is a story that kind of emerged uh, at the end of March and into the beginning of, uh, of, of April, where, as you say, first, um, first it was reported that this pro-life activist uh, was arrested um, and charged with... Um, with federal violations of with violations of a federal law which prevents access to an abortion clinic, and then um, headlines sort of around the world took off with this notion that, um, or, or with this reporting that this person had uh, that, that this woman Lauren Handy had five, the bodies of five unborn babies in her apartment, and of course there was an extraordinary kind of. Uh, uh, the media, would you say, Ed responded with um, with abject horror at uh, at the notion that this woman might have been doing something um, disrespectful to the bodies of those babies who had been um, killed through the process of abortion. The media seemed to be incredulous, disappointed, and much of the media seemed to be di- disappointed, disgusted that this woman might do something disrespectful or uh, immoral with the bodies of these babies really? who had I, been killed. That was by not the tone it. I observed. I observed them to be jubilant, almost hysterically <laughs> excited. Performatively outraged, perhaps. Uh, I, I, the, the friction of the vigorous rubbing of hands in editorial rooms of newspapers across the country could have lit a thousand fires, J.D. 
um, they were, I would say, almost hysterically excited at the prospect that they might be able to paint um, someone who has dedicated so much of their life and activity to opposing the, the grave evil of abortion as some kind of macabre sicko um, with, you know, who's you know keeping jarred babies in her in her home like like the worst you know, like kermit gosnell like some kind right, that, exactly. that was the equivalency that they were trying to draw is that this person is exactly the same as the worst kind of infanticidal maniac the abortion industry has ever produced and of course the reality seems to be very much other but you know that that doesn't um fit their priors so to speak or their or their desires and so that is not how the reporting has gone yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, uh, that's right. So um, we decided to, we asked Lauren to talk with us because we wanted to uh, uh, we wanted to hear what there hadn't been in the sort of first round of reporting about this at all was um, was a vo- was the voice of the person who was at the center of this. Like so many things, there was speculation and commentary, and I mean, really morbid and wild speculation about what, how this may have come to be. And if you read any of the coverage of it. You, you saw that. Um, but we asked Lauren to talk with us to tell us um, about uh, what had happened and, uh, and why, and to put it in the context of her activism on abortion, which has been a part of the, uh, you know, the full-time sort of occupation of her life since 2013. And uh, I didn't know Lauren Handy. I, I don't think you... Did you know her, Ed? I mean, you live in D.C. She lives in D.C. And no, had, I did not know her. I didn't know Lauren Handy, um, but it was it was really interesting to talk with her. She explained to us, um, which something which if you've read our coverage, you've read. She explained to us that she and um, uh, uh, her colleague at uh, at the group that she works uh, for called the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising um, met outside of an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C., the driver of a waste disposal truck, a truck that takes medical waste, uh, a, a truck that works for, you know, that is owned by a company that takes medical waste and incinerates it in, um, in, uh, in effectively, um, power plants. Right. I mean, is that the right way to say it? Yes, it is. It, it is. I think what the, what the crunchies and the hippies would call biofuel. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, I don't think that's actually true. That's a different thing, but you know, well, well, well tried. Um, okay. yeah. Okay. So anywho, um, they talked to this driver and they he was taking these boxes out of this abortion clinic and they say that they asked him if they could have they asked him if he knew it was inside of them and he said no and they said that they thought it was um of the bodies of aborted babies dead babies as they said and and uh and and he seemed they said he seemed shocked by that and they asked if they could have one and of these boxes and he said why and they said they wanted to to give the babies a a, a funeral and a burial and uh, they say that he um said yes to that and so they say they took one of the boxes another company says that's not true that he didn't give them one of the boxes that all the boxes that were supposed to be delivered from the clinic to the burnium the infirm the incineratorium the power uh, plant the power plant um were delivered there and uh and more to the point, I think they said it's not possible that they could have had because aborted it's against remains. our policy. They, anyone yes. would, yes. So they said uh, it's How against our policy that right. we would take the the bodies of destroyed children and burn them for fuel. You right. must be kidding. We would right. never do that. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, so that's what they said, and um, and uh, and so they had pictures of this box, which had the name of the energy company. And they had pictures of them taking the box home and opening it and discovering that there were a hundred and the bodies of 115, um, seemingly aborted, uh, babies in, in, in the box of, 
of various developmental sizes. Most of them, they said, were quite small. That seemed to be from sort of the early stages of pregnancy, um, but some of them were much larger and seemed to be much further along in development, even to the point of sort of 32 weeks of development. And how um, how incredibly difficult this was, Lawrence said that she just uh, sobbed when she opened the box and she saw these things, and she said more than anything, something which really struck me at, that she just felt so sorry. She said she felt so sorry to the, the these babies that she couldn't do anything to save their lives or to help their parents. And and uh, and Lauren Handy's ministry in particular is interesting because although she has been um, an activist against abortion since 2013, she's also like very engaged in apostolates of like support and um, finding resource and money for um, women living in poverty, whether pregnant or not, mothers or not, but just for people living in poverty, for people who are homeless, for people who are incarcerated. I mean, she's kind of uh, walks in that um, w- walks with people on, on the margins in any number of ways and has been very open about that but she said she just she felt so sorry that she wasn't able to save the lives of those children and the lives of uh, and, and to help their parents uh, I was struck by that reaction that was I'm not sure that would have been my I think I would have been heartbroken had I been there to see this and to see it unfold but I'm not sure if that would have been my reaction or not um this sense of know. personal responsibility that she had. Do I mean, <clears throat> this is the thing that strikes me about um, Lauren and her and her activism and her ministry, uh, particularly in the light of, you know, the, the, the things that she she saw and discovered in this box and everything else and the work that she has done going into abortion clinics and, you know, trying very hard to um, rescue the mothers as well as the, the children effectively is I'm not sure that her reaction isn't exactly right. I'm not sure that Lauren Handy isn't the sanest woman in the room in any conversation about abortion. You know, if you are, if you are looking at children in the state of violent death that, that she was, and you know that this is part and parcel of the of the quote unquote legal rights system of the country and the society in which we live, and it is an accepted daily reality. I don't know that feeling a, a sense of personal regret and responsibility for not having done more isn't isn't the sanest reaction. I mean, this is the thing that I often. Uh, have to confront in myself whenever we talk about abortion is that I, to a large part, try and not allow myself to fully comprehend what we are talking about half of the time and what is what is going on on a daily basis under the guise of medicine, no less, in this country. And, you know, if if children were having their hands tied behind their backs and shot in the street or on the sides of sandy pits... In Ukraine, we all are outraged and feel, or at least express, um, a sense that something must be done. We should be doing something. This should not be allowed. But when it happens in a clinic on North Capitol Street or wherever, it's just kind of a reality that we we say, well, it's regrettable. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the what reaction might I would have had in that? I 
and I don't, and if I did have, uh, if I was in that situation and whatever reaction I had, I'm not sure I'd be in a position to articulate it. Um, certainly not as well as she did. Uh, but I think it's, it, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'd call it an understandable reaction. Um, but it was, uh, I think, uh, it, she expressed it coherently and it, it certainly seems like a reaction a person could have to me. Yeah. When Lauren talked about um, the kind of thing that she uh, has been doing at abortion clinics for a while, namely this, uh, this, these things called sort of rescues, this rescue advocacy that she does, I, I, I had much the same reaction you did, I think. Um, a, a rescue kind of is this, this aspect of um, protesting or objecting to or advocating against abortion that has been around in the in the pro-life movement for a long time in different iterations so in the 80s you know there was this organization called operation rescue and there were lots and lots of people and lots and lots of abortion clinics all around the country who would kind of go inside an abortion clinic and chain themselves inside as an act of civil disobedience with the idea that doing so would um would uh shut down the operations of the thing for the day that the police you know that, that the police would have to come in to arrest them and that that would disrupt the the clinic's practice, and um, and as a consequence of that, there would be particular abortions that would not happen. You know, so that it would be an act of civil disobedience with a, with a direct, not with a, not with, specifically a political motivation, like raise awareness to our cause, but with a specifically sort of, um, human motivation. We we the, the the mentality of those who were involved in those rescues was like we will stand in, the way between. Um, unborn children and their imminent destruction. And uh, and so that happened in the early 80s and, and in the 90s with some kind of frequency. I think there was time in something called the Summer of Mercy that was like 1985 or 1986 or something like that where lots and lots of people were getting arrested doing this. And uh, and then um, in in the early 90s, there were, a federal law was passed um, called the Freedom of Access to Clinics, Clinic Entrances. Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances the FACES Act, and uh, or the FACE Act, I suppose. And this um, dramatically um, intensified the penalties involved in um, in this kind of thing, because instead of it being sort of merely the crime of trespassing, for which a person could get a fine or a short amount of jail time or something like that, um, it became a federal crime to obstruct uh, abortion clinics in this way, and, um, and people could face very serious uh, federal penalties. Um, it, it has been... Uh, unevenly um, applied or unevenly sort of utilized, um, but it, for the most part, it dramatically sort of diminished the sort of rescue uh, movement. And at the same time, um, acts of violence against abortionists also sort of diminished the those rescue movement because I think in a lot of people's minds they were correlated. And uh, and and there may have been people who were doing rescues who were involved in acts of violence against a, a abortionists and things like this. And so. So that kind of went away, and um, I don't know about you, Ed, but when I sort of started doing pro-life stuff as a young person, like in around 2000, I suppose, I like heard about this, but it always seemed, I don't know, it always seemed um, like something we just didn't do, you know what I mean? Like, well, maybe there was a time for that, and it wasn't always bad, but we don't do that anymore, and it's not, and, and sort of by implication, it's not a good thing to do, and it was, there was sort of a narrative of people who, who seemed to say that it was uh, less helpful than, than it was purported to be or that it did more harm than good or something like that, kind of put into the same realm as like, you know, if you hang around people who go to abortion clinics or 
people who talk about people who go to abortion clinics or I suppose there's always kind of conversation about pic- the pictures, right? I mean, people who hold up signs with really graphic pi- or pictures of, of children who have been aborted at abortion clinics or otherwise, and is that doing more harm than good? And so there was always sort of the same kind of connotation connected to this historical practice of these rescue movements. Um, and, uh, and so it, like, yeah, around 10 years ago, I guess, or, or less, less, I think, um, there was kind of a resurgence of these um, of these movements. Actually, I, I think it started in 2017, so way less than 10 years ago. But I, I guess in 2017, there's kind of a resurgence of this rescue action of civil disobedience um, from people who were again sort of entering um, abortion clinics and being and sort of staying there and um, and uh, and in some cases entering and trying and and not even trying to sort of chain themselves in and stop themselves in, but effectively to sort of continue sidewalk counseling inside the abortion clinic by going in and giving women a rose with information on it about where they could go for money or other things that they might need for their baby. And, you know, ask them if there's anything they need. And so that was kind of one iteration of it. And then another iteration was this sort of act of civil disobedience. And 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 I don't think that people were being, I don't know this, but it's not my impression that people who have been participating in this in recent years had been being prosecuted under the FACE Act um, during, uh, uh, until recently. And, but but Lauren Handy was, you know, is charged with uh, with sort of face a face act violation that could go that could lead to more than more than ten years in prison, depending on how and how how she might be convicted and of what and these kinds of things. And uh, and so uh, it's interesting because I, I I was always sort of it just always seemed like one of those things that was fringy and that people didn't do or it wasn't a, an, an appropriate part of the pro life movement or something like that. And I guess I hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought to be perfectly honest. But you know, Lauren. When I talked with her, I, I suppose on Monday, I, I asked her about it, and um, and I, I asked her about the ethics of it, and she effectively quoted a letter from a Birmingham jail to me and said an unjust law is no law at all. I mean, making many of the same citations as Martin Luther King with regard to acts of civil disobedience, and uh, and then and then made this analogy. She said, you know, if you saw someone drowning in a pool. Uh, e- even if the pool wasn't on your property or was on someone else's property, you wouldn't sort of stand on the sidewalk and shout, we're praying for you. She said, you you know, jump over the fence and take off your shoes and jump in the pool and, and get them out. And you wouldn't be so concerned about trespassing. And she said, if we really believe that abor- abortion is murder, wouldn't we have that same reaction? And to be honest, I, I didn't, I don't have a good, I don't have a good response back to, the, you know, I, I, again, I've never, I sort of assumed that I didn't, I, I wasn't, didn't think these were, the right thing to do, I guess, with uh, unreflectively. And I, I really, I mean, the in- purpose of the interview wasn't to advance a position or not advance a position. We just wanted to give her the opportunity to speak about what she was doing that was so controversial in the media and give her a platform in which she could speak and which we could ask her some questions about the ethics of it and other things. But, you know, I, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't an entirely unreasonable response, was it? I, I don't, yeah, I, I find it very hard to call her response reasonable. Again, again, like I said, I'm, I, I came away from reading that interview questioning whether or not she wasn't the most sane person. Is it something um, you'd thought about I've before this this uh, rescue? It has. Um, I had thought about it before, but I mean, again, even even in doing so, I was, you know, you you sort of impose a mental veil on yourself about, well, there's only so much of the actual reality of abortion that I'm going to allow myself to engage with here intellectually or emotionally, because otherwise you you either start jumping through windows or you lose your mind because that is what's going on. And, you know, what you're saying about, you know, there was a, a period where this sort of thing fell out of favor and it was sort of, you know, thought about in, 
in pro-life circles is, well, we don't do that. And it does more harm than good. And it's not helpful. It's like, well, helpful for right. what? What In what is it not helpful? It's not helpful if, if your goal is to sort of win, win over um, public opinion through, you know, sort of a, a broader social media campaign, social media, not a social media campaign, but a a, a campaign to change societal um, a media campaign a media campaign i, I don't understand. Do you the, want to just the drop idea the word of, social there i don't understand what it's doing in that sentence right but the idea is that you're trying to affect social change oh an activist media that campaign let's say on social yes. media are you saying um, like a facebook campaign anyway um and if you know if you, me if you conceive I'm a teenage, of, sorry I'm just messing with you if your if your goal or if how you conceive the goal of ending abortion is primarily articulated through what we have to do is we have to change uh, the the culture and we have to make abortion uh, the reality of abortion better understood socially and we have to convince people that just because we're opposed to abortion doesn't mean we're crazy or religious fanatics and that this is actually a very grounded real opinion to hold and you know reasonable people can can have a conversation about this and we think that you know progress can be made through reasonable conversation about this or um the best way to end abortion is through a concerted political campaign which involves making sure you stay on the right side of or even sucking up <laughs> to um politicians of well, you you laugh but it's i mean that that's what goes on um or pinning all of your hopes on you know striking the right balance of the right kind of justice being appointed to the Supreme Court every and single nomination. you are nomination, consistently which is cynical I... about the political prospects for the pro-life movement. And I hear you, and I, I'm cynical as, you know, I don't need much of an excuse to be cynical about anything. Um, but I do kind of wonder, like, um, hasn't, haven't laws restricting abortion and some complementary legislation supporting the family, haven't they advanced further along in recent years than um than than in you know they had in a long time and isn't that i mean you, you seem to be often cynical about sort of the political elements of uh, of opposition to abortion but i mean don't wouldn't you have to sort of recognize that it's possible even that roe versus wade might be overturned and abortion become a sort of decision that's left to states and these kinds of things at some point in the maybe it's possible i just i view I, if I'm if I sound cynical about the about the Supreme Court first and everything following tactic for ending abortion, it's because I think any reasonable person with an eye for recent history will know that every judicial nominee is effectively Schrodinger's cat. Um, you know, you've no idea what you're getting until you mm -hmm. open the box. And I do. I I you know, if we're talking about the authenticity and credibility of the pro-life witness, yeah, I have big problems with the compromises that are made in the in the political pursuit of ending abortion. That, you know, you we spent four years in this country without being able to turn around without someone appearing on television or on a podium or on a platform somewhere purring about how President Trump is the most pro-life president ever. And, you know, this is an accepted talking point of the political pro-life movement for four years, even though Donald Trump was lighting him up with the federal death penalty was a, every chance he got. Of, and it was manifestly not a pro-life president. That I think was set, was, it, it was a marriage of convenience that most people began by conceding was a marriage of convenience and then was somehow elevated into a, um, into a very happy and 
loving marriage of volition, I, I suppose. And now I have a limping analogy. And, yeah, well, and so um, uh, the, the, that wasn't usual. On policy related to abortion, whatever else can be said, and, I, and let it not be said that I'm not saying, uh, you know, don't misunderstand me here, but on policy related to abortion, I think it is true that, um, you know, the Trump administration did things that other administrations didn't do on some elements of policy related to abortion and made the kind of appointments that they said they were going to make. So if you looked at it just as a matter of if, if that was the bargain that was struck by the sort of political arm of the pro-life movement, I guess they got the things that they wanted. Um, but this sort of a, this sort of elevation of that into something which was uh, near sort of a... Um, near canonization at times was was i think the problem that you're pointing out well this is and what i'm saying is in terms right. of credibility and authenticity right. of the pro-life witness you know what what does the what does the authenticity and credibility of the pro-life witness more damage someone holding up a picture that authentically depicts what a murdered child looks like right uh, coming going into and coming out of abortion clinic well no that's that's not helpful um but you know uh, sort of offering not going past a transactional relationship with uh, a political candidate or campaign into what I would consider to be applauding and fawning deference. Um, I think that is equally damaging, if not more so. Uh, and again, getting back to, you know, what, you know, where, what, what is the reason, what are we talking about? What is the actual practical reality of abortion that is going on in this country? And what is the sane reaction to that? If, you know, again, we were talking about the situation in Ukraine earlier. You know, if people are being lined up on the side of Sandy Pits and shot and pushed in, you wouldn't say, well, the important thing here is that we really, you know, we hearts try and, and change minds, hearts right? and mm-hmm. minds. And it would be great if we get the the right justices appointed so we can make it illegal to put people on the edge of Sandy Pits right. and shoot them in the head with their hands tied by their back. That, that yeah. That's the argument of an right. insane that's person. That's why the immediacy, of, uh, the immediacy of a different kind of advocacy. That's why, I mean, but for me, it just was not... The kind of thing that Lauren, the saying, kind of thing are, I think you would you say this, wondering... the kind of thing that Lauren Handy was talking about was just not on my radar as being, you know, um, uh, was just not on my radar as something that seemed like, wow, there are people who are doing this and they're making a cogent argument for it. And now I yeah, hear that. Why isn't, right? why isn't it on people's I think, radar, J.D.? It's because I think it's we've, largely because, it's because it's been what's othered. That? It's been othered. Yeah, I think, that, it, I think know, that's you, right. Lauren Handy. I think that's right. I think it has. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's been othered by both sides. It's not, you know, you don't see, you know, people who are doing this kind of ministry. They aren't given pride of place at the March for Life. No, um, they're not. And and uh, they're not. They're treated like everyone's sort of redheaded steps in. I mean, what I find kind of interesting. They make us uncomfortable. I I think they had been. What I find kind of interesting is that sort of institutional pro-life organizations, some of which I have no time for because it seems like the principal arm of, you know, the sort of principal work is fundraising. But institutional pro-life organizations have... Probably because, you know, what else can be done? I mean, have been extremely... What else can be done other than fundraising, J.D.? Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's really just all you can do is dial for dollars. No, that's not that's what I, was the, gonna... I tell you what, though. Oh, okay, sorry. That's not I even remotely what I was saying. Have over the past... Uh, sorry. <laughs> just sometimes you get so worked up that I can't even make a point, you know? Is it really upsetting when someone interrupts you when you're trying to get a thought out? <laughs> It doesn't bother you, me. It just is. It's counterproductive. You know, my my. If I interrupt you, it's because I have something productive. <laughs> uh, I have noticed that sort of a lot of institutional pro life organizations have been supportive of Lauren Handy in a way that I wouldn't have anticipated. I actually would have anticipated more of them kind of distancing themselves from her than has been the case. And I, I mean that points to the fact that I think you know, 
I, I don't think a lot of people get into pro-life advocacy of any kind because they don't believe in it. In fact, on the contrary, I think people get into it because they do believe in it. I think it, one can become myopic about um, uh, one can become sort of myopic about their own sphere, and especially people in the political sphere can become myopic about the political sphere being the answer to everything. And the sort of um, this is the most important of election of our lifetime rhetoric can can ultimately begin to feel sort of count not only counter productive, but, you know, not only disingenuous, but but manipulative after a while. This is the most important. This is the most important. Can begin to feel sort of genuinely m- manipulative, um, such that it's kind of like, well, is the goal to end abortion here? Is the goal to keep on um, uh, um, keep on keeping on? You know what I mean? And, and, well, it's the mentality of a forever Right, it war. is. And it's also one which is the mentality of, which is the idea that, uh, that, that um, uh, only the Republican Party could oppose abortion. You know, we saw that with... Um, with uh, with Dan Lipinski, you know, who is the last pro-life Democrat in Congress mm-hmm. who had a hard time getting support from the pro-life PACs for his, his primary. He was being primaried by the Democrats uh, um, because uh, because pro-life PACs were giving money largely, giving money and resources largely to um, to Republican candidates. And so there is a way in which, you know, the, one can ask about the, the whether or not the things are, um, whether or not some of those organizations are being um, um, sincere um, in their approach and, and and those kinds of things. And it is also true, I think you're right, that it is insufficient to say that Roe versus Wade be overturned and abortion will be over. Now, Roe versus Wade, I think, should be overturned. I think you would agree with that, that Roe versus Wade, which um, allows for abortion, you know, uh, which limits the ability of states to restrict abortion, should be overturned because abortion is immoral. Um, and it would save lives. It would save if it lives was. as it was, but that's you know, and and the Texas law, which pro, which li- which prohibits most abortions in Texas, has um, decreased abortion significantly in the state. So laws which prevent pre- uh, laws which prevent abortion do um, work. Uh, laws which are aimed to prevent abortion do work to prevent abortion. Um, so I don't think you can discount the sort of political element of things. But you would be, I think, no, I'm not naive discounting to think the political that that's the element. central element of things or the only obligation that we have. Yeah, I'm not discounting the political element of things. I'm just saying if we're talking about, <clears throat> which is how we started talking about all of this, is, you know, what what reaction should a person have if you open a box and find the bodies of 115 dead children? And the question of, well, what personal responsibility might one feel to these children for not having yeah, done more. Yeah, I, When I said I don't know that I would have that sense of personal responsibility, I didn't mean people shouldn't. I just meant I don't know that I am... No, uh, I know. But <laughs> pass the test. I, I, again, I'm saying I think... No, I know. And But again, this is what you were saying about when, when you started getting involved in pro-life activity and stuff, which was, you know, what, 20 years ago yeah. now. And, you know, the idea that this kind of immediate intervention and activism was frowned upon. You were, you know, you were. Well, there was a desire the not only party. to. It's just not only to. Do um, not only, Ed, I think, to um, make. Uh, to, to focus on the political, but to ensure. I think there have been times when um, advocacy. when there have been efforts by some people to ensure that advocacy against abortion doesn't become unreasonably 
weird, as it were, right? So we should advocate against abortion, but we should make sure that we do it in a way that doesn't make us like totally at odds with our neighbors. And, you know, there's a way in which the person who's like kind of super pro-life, who you see at the clinic or you see at the Paris Respect Life movement, who that's their whole life, there's a way in which he's kind of fringy. And I think there's a desire of a lot of people to say, there's a desire of a lot of people to say, we can advocate against abortion and it won't demand of us that we become kind of fringy weirdos. But frankly, Perhaps it demands much more fringy weirdness than many of us are willing to concede. This is exactly my point, is that I'm not sure becoming a apparently unhinged fringy weirdo isn't the sanest possible reaction to the actual reality yeah. of abortion. Like, if you see an image of a nine-month-old unborn child with its head vacuumed right. out, why do you, How, what, 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 what other reaction put, is sane? What limits should any of us put on sort of the social acceptability of our advocacy, the social... Now, there are people who put limits on the on their advocacy with regard to the plausibility of, of accepting a punishment of a decade in prison because they have children and obligate... You know, they have children that they have to raise right. an obligation. But that is... A, but what, but what limits should we put on the social acceptability of our advocacy against the inhumanity of the thing? None. And, exactly. And I'm not saying that there isn't a trade-off for people to consider when what they can do or by what they way of be personal doing, right? action. I mean, because so, some people have to yeah. uh, adopt lots of children from foster care. And some people do adopt lots of children with fetal alcohol syndrome from yeah. foster care. And that's the, and God bless them, right? If everyone got arrested, that would be the end of that. Yes. Um, but um, And some people dedicate, you know, all of their spare time to running right, crisis exactly. pregnancy or the, centers or do and ensuring that professionally for very little you know, professional. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, there are many parts of the body, as it were, but there's a way in which I think you talk to Lauren Handy and you can, and, and, and for her, abortion is, the, when she says abortion is the critical human rights movement of our, uh, a crisis of our time, she follows it up with, and so I, X, Y, and Z, in a way that is all out. And the convicting thing, right. I think, and is is whether or not many of us say abortion is the fundamental human rights issue of our time, and here's what I'm doing about it in a way that is not uh, all out and whether or not that's really where we ought to be. Yeah. I, again, it's not to say that everyone can or should as a matter of their own personal commitments and responsibility be doing the same kind of activism that Lauren Handy's doing, but to, to have as we have had a sort of tacit acceptance on all sides that that's kind of weird and maybe just a little bit too much. And, right. And I, you know, and it I makes don't want to be those people who, who, you know, all they talk about is abortion and they have a million bumper stickers on the back of their van and that, yeah, right. Right. And we don't want to be weird. But what I don't have any time for is people who, who say things like, oh yeah, well these people who go into abortion clinics and, you know, handcuff themselves to, or try and rescue women out of abortion clinics, you know, they're doing more harm than good. Right. They're not helping. It's like not helping. Right. What? Exactly. Because, they're trying an to help actual an person. Actual I mean, that was one mother. of the things that Lauren said that really struck me is when we do a rescue, we go in with the idea that we're going to aim to save the life of a specific baby on a specific day. There's no abstraction to it. There is um, there is this aim which is concrete, tangible, and, and often achieved. Yeah. And I mean, next to that, I really don't give a shit if it makes it a little more awkward for you at a cocktail party to try and I've explain why you're pro I've never been to a cocktail life. party. It's, a, it's, a, it's the expression du jour, but I don't think I get invited to cocktail parties. But I, at, in the school pickup line or on the soccer field or other places that people actually go to, do you, I mean, have, do you actually go to a cocktail party yet? Uh, Bull. May I, may I be yes. honest about this? I have been to exactly one cocktail party in DC mm -hmm. since I arrived several years ago. 
and I hosted it. So there you have it. It doesn't make you uncomfortable. I just let's get off this cocktail party thing because it is a it is a. You know what I have false... a problem with? If we're talking about cocktail parties, which I'm willing to talk about if you want to, is any cocktail party, quote unquote, at which cocktails are not actually served, at which there is not a full bar from which you can order any mixed drink. See, of, I'm not in a know, position to have a feeling about this because I don't think I go to a cocktail party. I just mean, I think people tend to, at least in this country, use cocktail parties as sort of catch-all event I'm, for I'm any social that. gathering. It's a bad, it's bad. We I should know. say. It's bad, where, it's bad, it's mm. bad language. I agree. You should never, you should never call uh, something a cocktail party at which cocktails are not served. If you are basically saying it's, there's no sit-down meal involved and you may or may not get a lukewarm glass of white wine, then call it something else. Call it a drinks reception or something like that. But I have, I have turned up to events which purportedly had a cocktail hour at which I attempted to order an right. old fashioned or a Manhattan, and I was looked at like I had three heads, and I said, "I'm sorry, am I at the wrong event?" <laughs> you so, you or if so you just rude. tempted me here under you false are so pretences, rude because you... I believe that you've said that. Just take what they're offering, you jackass. <laughs> I absolutely have said that. <laughs> I, 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 would, I dislike social I gatherings as a rule, J.D., about. and I really don't like being lured out on the promise of booze and then being handed some sort of, you know, crappy glass of Chardonnay. Like this. I'm sorry. This is not I want to come I'm back to what we're talking about. Uh, um, the okay, uh, the uh, the charism and mission of clerics is to teach, sanctify and govern. Right. Actually, I don't. The, the charism and mission of, of clerics is not principally social action. Right. And so a cleric can discern this sort of thing. The charism and mission of parents is to, among other things, the education of children. And so I think, you know, a parent would have a lot to discern before they decided to go to prison, do something which might send them to prison for 10 years. Um, But there's a way, and those things are simply true, right? I mean, there's those, those things are simply true. But there is a way in which I think we can always, we can desire to hold the position that this thing which happens in America, abortion, is the greatest social evil of our time, the greatest human rights crisis of our time, without wanting to reflect on what that actually means for our own state and life. And I can think of lots of um, clerics who teach uh, about it regularly and urge people to do things to end abortion and, and, and ought to be commended for that, and many bishops who do that and ought to be commended for that, and I can think of many, you know, and I can think of many parents and, 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 and people in, with families or other obligations who are doing many things. Um, but I do just and, think— And I for, know religious priests and sisters who engage in the kind of activism and, and, and for religious, I think it's different because the charism of religious is to be witness to their baptism, and so it's a different thing. Yes. A, a, a priest, a religious priest is not ordained for the ordinary care of souls in the same way that— um, uh, I was just trying to no, supplement in the same way that a secular priest not. is. And actually, I think that sort of historically, a religious priest is ordained to care for the spiritual needs of the community in which he, I mean, historically in, in, in religious institutes, a religious priest is ordained to care for the, the needs of the community. I suppose that changes probably in the, um, I don't know, when do you think in the in the Counter-Reformation or something like that? But I mean, that's sort of the historical notion of priests in a religious community, at least some religious communities. Um, at any rate... Um, but I do think the witness, the, the thing, the lore and handy thing is and ought to be for all of us an occasion to reflect on what our own commitments, are, whether our own commitments align and how our own commitments can more concretely align to our stated set of principles. And I agree with you that I don't think politics is a sufficient resolution to that. Although if a person and is I, in elected office sort of working for this day in day out, I suppose. Right. Again, it's not, I'm not saying one negates yeah. the other and one is without utility. I'm saying the immediacy of one 
should not be denied or minimized or excluded or treated as somehow, you know, unhelpful in adv- to help nor, advance the other. Nor That's should, um, nor should uh, um, uh, uh, um, the political aim of, uh, of, of, uh, of making abortion illegal kind of excuse. Christians should always speak prophetically in the political arena, which is to say that even if someone shares the just political aim of ending abortion, they're not doing that because they, they don't, they shouldn't be perceived to be sort of absolved of all shortcomings because they're doing us that solid. Every Christian has an, every person has an obligation in political life has an obligation to work for an end to abortion and other injustices against human dignity. So one who is fulfilling, this, one who is fulfilling I, a minimal com- human obligation shouldn't be um, held up f- for that as some kind of a hero who's doing us a favor and we ought to just absolve, every, mitigate and absolve everything else that they've done. Sorry, what were you going to say? That was what I was going to say is that I have often encountered this where I have um, been in conversations either with or about politicians who with whom I have serious disagreements on matters of policy and even on occasion personal morality. And I, I am told often in chiding terms, you know, they're but so they, pro- right. they are, they're so pro-life. They are, first of all, I, I want to immediately bottom out the phrase, well, how pro-life are they? Or do you just mean they're against abortion? Not that being against being abortion, against abortion isn't is important. pretty damn important, but it's not all. The, it's, it, but again, right. this is the thing is it's not, it's not, as you say, it's not an act of heroism. It's a minimum human mm-hmm. criteria. Oh, they're they're against. I'm yeah. We would. I don't think we would ever against, say. Oh boy, that we shouldn't criticize that politician because he's against child abuse. It's like, well, yeah. It's like I. <laughs> right, what? Exactly. I, it's like okay. Um, you know, this person is a. How can you be critical of this senator? Do you know they are against the electrocution right, of exactly. old ladies? It's, right. Oh, exactly. I sometimes didn't realize there was become, such a prophetic witness. We become, in, we become because because. There's a political cost to being against abortion or something like that. It's easy for us to become sort of satisfied or sycophantically satisfied even with with that as a sole political criteria. Yeah. Yes. I'm not saying anything else because I get the impression. I'm no, not at all. I do think it's probably time to. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was that was heavy. Yes. It was heavy, JD. I don't know. And we went a little bit over time. Uh, we could we could play a game of a kind. We should probably play a game because I was heavy. You, just as a palate yeah, cleanser. A, a little sorbet. Okay. Well, I mean, this is, we are recording this on Thursday, which is April the 7th. By the way, did you tell me yesterday? Did it again. I. <laughs> what? I think I was trying to transition to a game, but you want to talk about sales. Let's, what Before is it? What happened transition yesterday? To the game, did you tell me yesterday that you had never heard of Hands Across America? Yeah. That was a that was a new one on me. <sighs> That's crazy to me. So, Hands Across America, dear listeners, who may be in the same living into the same English rock as Ed, was this? No, no, this is not an English rock. Because then you told me what it was, and I googled it and I read about. It. I was living in the United States at this point. This I am not saying. Oh, I was living somewhere else. I didn't. We know. were pretty I, young. I mean, for just what passed... we were pretty young. I think I was three and a we half or something young. like that. But, but it's my I'm first surprised memory. the cultural. Right, but I'm surprised the cultural echo didn't yeah, carry no, it's true. through. Hands Across America was a large event on Sunday, May 25th, 1986, where millions of people held hands across the United States to form a pseudo-continuous human chain across the contiguous United States. There were parts of the chain that did not have full continuity, I learned doing a little bit of reading about this last night, but a, a pseudo-continuous chain across the whole of the United States. And the purpose was to uh, to raise money for... 
to fight hunger and homelessness and help those in poverty because people who participated in the human chain donated money in order to do so. And, uh, and uh, it was a big to-do. Um, and it was kind of a happening, you know what I mean? Like the very notion of people all across America getting together to do a thing, hold hands, before they could coordinate that with their cell phones or anything. I mean, it was kind of a happening. Like, you know, not that much was happening in 1986. So for those people in those days, it was, I think, probably a big deal. You know, like, wow, we get to hold hands with people. But it's my first um, memory. I don't like holding hands. I know, I understand that you wouldn't have liked it, but it's my first memory, and I remember it as an experience of sort of civic engagement and participation that was positive. I mean, it's three, but a, a sort of positive expression of civic engagement and participation that has always sort of stuck with me. And uh, and, I, and I, I think probably a lot of the reason why I am the way I am is because of it's my first memory. But you don't, I can't believe your parents didn't tell you about it or anything. No, my first memory is um, what seemed very tall to me, although I was definitely also about of, of a similar age. So it's probably only two and a half feet tall or something like that of a, of a, of a Donald Duck yard sprinkler in the local hardware store where I was with my dad, JD. It was a kind of barber's pole. Was this your rosebud? Had... I mean, have you been covening it all these years? Well, no. I. This is the thing: is I remember, I remember seeing it in. I can remember exactly where it was at the end of an aisle in in the local True Value, and I was there with my dad. I think it was the cool. And then I have a very vivid memory of playing with it in the in the yard of the little apartment so building which was my first you. home he must have got it for i have no memory of my i have no memory of the moment when my father will have apparently acceded to Do you this think it's possible you stole it no because you couldn't have possible. set it up you couldn't have stole it and then gone home and set it up that would be no, a bit I, much I, it, I have a vivid memory of playing with it in the yard on on morse avenue which you know, I was very young when we lived there, so I this this, this I would have needed adult assistance for almost every phase of this. So I, I you know, you remember Hands Across America. I remember a yard. Do sprinkler. you think that so, first memories are personality determining in some way? Uh, I don't know. Interpret for me the yard sprinkler, and I'll tell you. I don't want to interpret it for you. Why you like to <laughs> you like to psychoanalyze me all the time? You you are constantly telling me that I have, for example, father issues because I like you wristwatches. Do. Anyone and... who is obsessed with wristwatches is somehow trying to connect with the nostalgia of their dad and their grandpa. That seems obvious. No, that's why I like baseball. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you are. That's why you're a trad about baseball. That's why any change, any change about baseball. What what it, the reason why you get so upset when they make the bags bigger or put a guy on second base or whatever for the extra innings or whatever the hell that it is they do the reason why you get so upset is because it's your it's a, every single one of them is a reminder of your father's mortality i'm certain of that that every single one of them is like a recognition for you that these moments with your dad as a little kid are slipping away and you may never have them again and you can't have them again and baseball's taking them from you and the ticking time of the watch is taking them from you and all of these things that you're trying to measure and hold on to and just hold on to the past it's really about your 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 uh, dread like your dread of uh, of the the inevitability of your father's mortality, isn't it? Ed? Wow, <laughs> I mean, you can say wow, but um, am I wrong? Uh, you're really going to enjoy my newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about your you're newsletter. You're going to go to town on I'm that. I'm curious about your newsletter now. But anyway, I hope that Mr. Condon is in good health um, for you for for your <laughs> sake as much as for his. To be perfectly honest, because I just don't, and for my sake in a certain way, because I just don't know how many how many baseball games I could watch with you and how many watches I could wind with you, you know, we're, we're, we're he to go quietly into that good night. And so I, I'm hoping, uh, for the best for him. 
and for you and for me. Yeah, let's okay. play Okay, well, <laughs> no, I had a quick round of opening day, oh, yes opening or day, no, yes because or no. that is... But I don't know. We're, no, let's we're well do it. Let's opening day, yes or no. Daddy, can we catch fly balls, it's called. Oh, God, okay. Um, JD, uh, celebrity or presidential first pitches? Oh, like when... Uh, you know what was cool? Uh I mean, it was just a moment of national coolness, I suppose. You remember right after the first baseball game after September 11th, old George W. Bush? Was it? Yes, when George Bush threw out the pitch of the yeah, Yankees game. No, yeah. sure. Okay. Although, I guess you know who's throwing out the first pitch at Wrigley Field this season? Alfonso Soriano. No. He's a celebrity. Not really. <laughs> Alfonso Soriano was great. He was a great. He was, he was all right. Yeah, he was good. Second baseman. Do you, should I tell you a story? And this is a story that this is when I first realized um, how much my wife loves me. Is, is this the, an Alfonso Soriano Mut- story? It is actually. Okay. Alfonso Soriano, if you don't know, was a, a second baseman for the New York Yankees, the Texas Rangers, the Washington Nationals, and the Chicago Cubs. And then he played in the Japanese League for the Hiroshima Toyo Carp for a little while. Yes. Um, the Carp are a good team, actually. Uh, anyway. You were so full of crap. This was short in the days. Tell the story. No, I, I, okay. So in the days immediately following our wedding, we are, we're on honeymoon and, uh, I, I happened to know the Cubs were, were playing. And so I, I, I turned the game on and thought, I'm not going to get more than a half an inning here because, you know, we're going to need to go do some kind of activity. We we all got it. Yeah. Um, anyway, to my surprise, my, my wife, Sat herself down, opened up a bottle of wine, and said, "No, let's watch. Let's watch the game." This is my English wife, who knows nothing mm-hmm. of baseball and no connection with. And so I just thought, "Well, I'm going to ride this luck for as long as it takes me." And then Soriano comes up to bat oh, oh, for the like, carp. You were watching a carp game for the for the oh, Cubs. For the Cubs. You were watching for the carp game. Soriano comes up to bat. She goes, "You know, Soriano was the last player to hit a home run in the old Yankee Stadium before they demolished it." Wow! And I just, I honestly, I was like, the whole world froze and i was like i'm sorry are you dropping deep track trivias about cubs play i mean who are you and how much and it turned out that she not only knew the game was going to be on knew i wanted to watch it but had studied wow up. that's lovely your wife's a nice lady to, she is i mean that was a long time ago oh that was more than a decade ago your head I, the carp are a good team I don't actually know everyone heard again. ed say the carp are a good team 2021, the Carp uh, finished their season 63 and 68. 2020, the Carp finished their season 52 and 56. 2019, oh, 2019, the Carp did not have a losing record. They finished their season 70 and 70. So just so everyone knows, Ed's metric of what is a good team is determined entirely by being in, entirely by about as bad as the Cubs. Yeah, and how they play the now, game. The, how yeah. they play the game. It's oh, wins it, and losses. Oh, it's about the character of the carp, the individual carp in the pond or whatever. They are eight and four this year, but it seems an inevitability that that's going to fall apart, doesn't it? <laughs> you mock me, JJ, but I love this The carp game. are a good team is the funniest thing that you have said to me in a while. No, I, I, I loosely follow um, two teams, Japanese baseball, I, the, the Tokyo Giants and the, and the Hiroshima Carp. And I, you know, I keep an eye. The Tokyo Giants are, you know, if you want a team that's going to win more often than not, I suppose they're fine. But the Carp are the ones, they have the spirit, JD. They have the sand of the Chicago Cubs. And I, I, I respect I've never heard that. of the Tokyo Giants. 
Oh, there they are. Uh, on this thing that I'm looking at, they're called the Yamori. So that's why I didn't know. Oh, guess yeah, what? A... Ed, guess who played today? You will not believe this. Who? The, the, the Carp, Carp and the Giants and played? The Giants, your two teams faced off today. Can you who believe won? it? Who won? who won? Who do you think won? I mean, who do you think was favored going into the game? The Giants. I'm sure they Oh, uh, You know, it was a crushing. But the Carp carped those Giants 9-2. to two. No, no kidding. kidding. A big one for Hiroshima, which, you know, they needed a win. <sighs> Good for them. Yeah. All right. That's okay. great. I'm going to send you a Hiroshima Carp okay. shirt, J.D. Next question. <laughs> I don't even know where. We, was that all the, the first, first, that was the first one? one. I I'll, I'll get more serious now. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay. What I now gather we're only calling the wave. It used to be called something else. It had a national identifier, but I, I gather that's now politically sensitive. We don't say that. But the wave. You know, when the crowd do the wave around the stadium. Yeah, I that. never knew it as anything else. Oh, okay. But sure. You're in favor ah, of that? I like to see it happen. I don't want to have to be a part of it, but I'd like to see it happen. I like to happen around me. I dislike it. It's exactly the kind of forced audience participation that I see, just... See, I you think know the what? opposite. It's usually organic and it usually doesn't get going. What I like are thwarted waves you know where some guy is just oh i, I, I love I'm watching a guy or a couple of guys at a game who are just desperate to get the wave going and anytime there's a lull in activity or even not they're just popping up hoping everybody will join them i i love a good erstwhile wave is what i love oh i i love a good film it's like wave. it's I do like love you know that. i was just i just saw this actually in hiroshima's carp stadium um they call it the koi pond and uh, there were these two guys no i'm making that up don't you hope they call it the koi pond though uh yeah the goldfish bowl the goldfish bowl um all right uh throwing back home runs from the away team oh the bad guys hit a home run and you catch it and you throw it back no because my kid wants the ball disappointing okay uh bad beer jd stadium beer is notoriously horrible oh not for me or it come to course they they started doing course field first of all but do you drink Coors well, at Coors you can, Field? and of course, Coors Banquet is brewed just 15 minutes from Coors Field. Well, that's Field. not bad beer. That's good beer. Yeah, so you can have that, and then you can have what used to be Colorado's great um, um, media, I don't want to call it a microbrewery, so media brewery, New Belgium, which I think they sold to InBev or something like that a couple of years ago, but it used to be our great serious real brewery. And then, and then of course, so we've got, we've got decent beer. There are very few places you can go in Colorado and not have decent beer, and Coors Field is one of them. So... If your um, if your standard ballpark beer is is Coors Banquet, you're doing very well. I was referring to stuff like old style. Yeah, and, no, I think know. our standard ballpark beers would be Fat Tire and Coors Banquet. Okay, Fat Tire is hipster. No, but, it's not um, not for us. Coors Banquet it's is just a, ordinary beer here because they just Denver's a hipster city, JD. <laughs> oh, I mean, no. Do I have to get off? Yes, it do is. I have to get off my? You guys have, have axe throwing bars and, and hike up my suspenders and put down my vinyl collection and beat you up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the actual picture on the label of Fat Tire Beer is a fixie bike. Yeah, but the reason for that is because the reason for that is because the warehouse and brewery complex are so large that they supply bikes for people who work there so that they can get around more quickly and more easily during the workday. It's efficiency. It's a a model of efficiency. Uh Okay. Um, Mascots, JD. And by this, I mean the guys in the costumes wandering around the stadium. Trying to hug me. I understand what a mascot is. I love that you wanted to explain it to me. No, I don't. I, what I mean is not the image, not the cartoon image that they might right, choose the to Philly use for branding. Yeah. I think, did they get rid of the Philly? No, they said. 
No, I don't yeah, think Yeah, I'm all for a mascot. Okay, fair enough. Um, and finally, ketchup on hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. What's the big deal? Uh, exactly. That's what I thought I don't like say. relish. I don't like onions. But uh, I'll put some ketchup on a hot dog. This explains more about well, you, you know, my than remembering Hands Across America. Hands Across America, where there were hot dogs. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, Ed. Well, this has been great. Um, the uh, This has been great. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. And the Pillar Podcast is... What do I say? See, I got to get used to coming back from a commercial. The, <laughs> the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. We'll see you next week for a special Holy Week episode of the Pillar Podcast.